Welcome to the WCAPS 5 podcast series. WCAPS is an online community dedicated to strengthening the leadership and professional development of women of color, specializing in the fields of peace, security, conflict transformation, and foreign policy. Join us as we unpack their valuable perspectives, learn from their strategies, and grow together. Vive. Vision. Impact. Voice. Engagement. Hello, I want to welcome all of you to another uh, edition of our podcast series, Vive, with uh, WCAPS, Women of Color Advanced Peace, Security, and Conflict Transformation. My name is Ambassador Jenkins. I am the Executive Director of WCAPS. And it's really my pleasure to um, have a podcast with one of our WCAPS members, Jamila White, who has uh, a lot of experience and background on dealing with issues of development, but also uh, infectious disease issues. So I really thought it'd be great to do a podcast with her and just to hear some of her thoughts about some of the things that's going on with COVID-19 um, and just some of her, um, also some, some thoughts of, of the future and how some of these uh, issues related to this pandemic affect women of color, uh, both during, the, during what's happening now and, and potentially in the future. Um, but what I first want to do is uh, ask Jamila to say hello to all of you and to say a little bit about herself. So Jamila. Hi, Ambassador. Thank you so much for having me on and hello WCAPS family and community. I am Jamila White. I am a DMV, that's District of Columbia, Maryland, Virginia native and resident. I have been working in international development and humanitarian sector for my entire career, which is a little less than 15 years. And I have spent most of that time working in Sub-Saharan Africa on different development and humanitarian issues. I, my most experience related to COVID-19 is a year I spent in Sierra Leone and Guinea as an emergency responder for the West Africa Ebola outbreak. I served as the director of the National Emergency Response Center for Sierra Leone. We were the first leg of the response. And I also was a strategic member of the Sierra Leonean emergency response team, those, those people making strategic decisions, feeding in information to the director of the response, to the situation room director, um, to the now mayor of Freetown, Sierra Leone, for them to, to make decisions. So I worked on it from more of the strategic level and then also implementation level for managing the first leg of the Ebola response for Sierra Leone and Guinea. I also, as a first responder, worked on Hurricane Dorian cleanup for three months from September of from September 2019 through the end of December 2019. My main work for Hurricane Dorian was access to water and then setting up a small business economic development recovery fund where I was able to raise $2 million, help raise $2 million to start an economic recovery program. So that's a little bit about myself as it relates to this discussion. Great, thanks. Thanks, Joelle, that's great. So, um, so you mentioned that you're a DMV native, that's great. Um, tell us a little bit about um, like you went to school and your upbringing a little bit. Um, and then after you talk about that, uh, why don't you tell us a little bit about how you got interested into, how you got into the field that, you, that you're into now? 
Well, that's great. So I um, live in Ward 8 in Washington, D.C. I am a proud resident of Anacostia community. Um, my community is amazing. It's beautiful. It's diverse. Um, unfortunately, we also lack a lot of the resources that the rest of the city has access to. We lack access to healthcare, access to food, access to economic opportunity um, here. So when we start our discussion, I'll tell you how, how that's affecting us over here. Um, I actually went to Hampton University as an undergraduate. I was uh, studying French in uh, business because I wanted to work in the fashion industry to bring more diversity to fashion. And it was while I was a student at Hampton and through my French language program that I got into development. Um, I had the opportunity to study abroad in Senegal uh, to study French and Wolof and that just changed my life. And after that study abroad experience, I wanted to know why did poverty look like me and what could I do to change that? So that's really how I got my bearings. And ever since then, I've been trying to answer that question and solve that question. Why does absolute poverty look like me and what can I do to change it? So tell us about what your trajectory. I mean, where where did you where did you work in some of the places that you worked before you got to where you are now? Yeah, so I started my career off in Liberia, in northern Liberia, um, right after their civil war ended in two thousand eight. And I worked for a small American organization, a small American nonprofit that actually no longer exists. I took a supported volunteer position, which meant I took a local salary and moved to Northern Liberia to work with ex-combatants on UNDP's DDRR programming. So I worked on the R and R part of it, the reintegration. And I always forget what the other R stands for. Um, so I, that's how I started. And so I started in um, peacekeeping and agriculture value chain kind of training because we were really working on training ex-combatants um, on different livelihoods and different skills to help them reintegrate into community. And I spent about five years in Liberia. And throughout that process, I had, you know, graduated levels within that small NGO. Then I moved on to a larger NGO, OIC International, which is one of the first African-American international NGOs in, in the U.S., along with, you know, Africare, of course, and work there um, in Liberia. And that's kind of how I got started. And then after that, you know, five years stint in Liberia, I had a year break, which I came to the U.S. to do global policy and global advocacy with a wonderful organization in D.C. called Results Educational Fund. But then after that, I just kind of stayed on the continent. I left, left Liberia and went to Sierra Leone and Guinea, um, kind of came back, was in Mali uh, for a long time doing work, and just really concentrated in the West, West Africa. Great. That sounds wonderful. So um, what has it been like working in this field? Um, what have been some of the things that you've really enjoyed um, doing and, and maybe some surprises that you've encountered? Working in this field, I really like learning from the communities in which I serve. I learned, you know, 15 years ago that the communities have the answers, that what they lack is access, and that my role is helping to provide that access. I'm not here to help save Africa, save Ward 8, save anybody. <laughs> I can't do that. What I can do is use the access that I have to create greater access and to work towards equity and to work towards inclusion and to make sure that their voices are heard and that they're not only heard, but that the power dynamic starts to change. So what I really, really focus is on 
in international affairs, international development and humanitarian is equity and inclusion. How do we bring equity and inclusion to the work that we're doing in all aspects so that we are enablers and helping countries to transform instead of just dictating them what to do um, because we know that doesn't work. So that's what I find so rewarding. And it's, it's, it's very challenging as well. I get often called a radical. <laughs> Sometimes when you get invited to panels, they're like, well, I didn't expect you to talk about equity and race and inclusion. I'm like, why not? This is a root driver of, the, of all the issues we're dealing with. And also, you know, Sometimes you have to be a maverick within the same organizations that you're working in and understanding what risk you can take internally with your own career to bring about that change. So um, at this juncture in, in my career and what I see myself focusing on um, for the rest of my life, my life's calling is equity and inclusion. And when I say equity and inclusion, I want to be very specific that I'm talking about racial and ethnic equity and inclusion as a way to open the doors to all, all equity and inclusion. So let's 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 shift a little bit to um, you know the the what you were engaged in uh, with the hurricane and with uh, uh, with some of the other uh, issues like infectious disease. Tell us a little bit more about um, your involvement and how you got involved in those. And you can start with the hurricane or or whichever one you want. Sure. So I was actually living in Sierra Leone um, back when the West Africa Ebola outbreak started. I was I moved to Sierra Leone in May of 2014. So I moved to Sierra Leone two months before Ebola was declared an outbreak. And I was working for um, a Danish organization as, as their program manager for governance and maybe like youth programming. And so was in the country working had just got to Sierra Leone, just started working, and then all of a sudden, the president announces that it's a state of emergency, <laughs> planes are going to shut down, all this stuff is happening overnight, and we had heard about Ebola, but they were really, really downplaying it, like, oh, it's not here, it's not that big of a deal, it's under control, then all of a sudden, state of emergency, everything shut down, don't leave your houses, and it was like, what? what's happening? And the organization I was working for, unfortunately, had to evacuate all of his expatriates because of some regulatory bureaucracy issues. So I was sent to the UK. And after a month or maybe six to eight weeks in Europe, uh, looking at what was happening on the continent, I contacted our, my CEO and my boss first to say, I'm sorry, I can't, I can't sit in Europe anymore. Um, I'm going to have to quit because I want to go back and fight Ebola. And the CEO was very supportive. He said, I'm going to do you one better. You don't have to quit. We'll second you back to the Ebola response, where you get to choose where you want to go and work, and we'll pay your salary so that, you know, providing some resources to the Ebola response is our small contribution. And so when that happened, I just reached out to folks back in Sierra Leone to say, where's help needed? I'm, you know, I'd be happy to do anything. And actually got picked up by this organization called eHealth Africa to come over as their emergency response manager. And they had just gotten funding from the CDC Foundation and Gates Foundation and a bunch of other supporters to help improve the Ebola response call center, which is the first leg of the response in Sierra Leone, because at that time it was not functioning very well. So when, when, when I was hired, um, 
the CEO said, have you ever worked in technology? I said, no. Have you ever worked in infectious disease? I said, no. Have you ever worked in public health? I said, no. He was like, well, what do you know how to do? I said, I know how to do agriculture. I know how to do governance work, peacekeeping, and I know how to manage. And he was like, okay, since you know how to manage, come manage this. And literally overnight, I had to learn a whole bunch of stuff I had never heard. I'm talking about, I never heard of E1s. I never heard of like servers. I barely knew how to use Google, you know? But I knew how to manage, I knew how to strategize, and I knew people. And I understood um, how a lot of groups and a lot of uh, communities and demographics are left out of the equation, and I could, and they were the ones that are directly affected. So I knew I could be their voice and their advocate to bring support to their community. So that's actually how I fell into the role of working on Ebola. I was, you know, sitting in Europe, was like, I can't do this. I felt like I was turning my back on Africa and I was like, I'm going back. Forget this. And, and that's how I, how I fell into the Ebola role. And um, my organization seconded me. I worked on the response for a year. Um, and it was the greatest service of my entire life. Um, and then in my current position, I'm the senior Africa representative for Mercy Corps. Mercy Corps is one of the largest international non-governmental organizations. I'm based in D.C. Um, and when the Hurricane Dorian hit the Bahamas, because Mercy Corps does emergency services and humanitarian, they put out an internal call for anyone with firsthand experience in managing responses and disasters who wanted to deploy for um, the Bahamas. And so I immediately volunteered. Um, and that's how I, I went to the Bahamas for three months with my organization to work on uh, the Dorian response. So Tell us a little bit, I mean, that's great. So tell us a little bit about, um, you know, going back to uh, e Ebola, what were some of the, what were some of the um, lessons and takeaways um, from that experience? Because um, then I'd like to talk a little bit about what's going on now uh, with coronavirus. Yeah, well, um, money doesn't solve a crisis. We had billions of dollars in aid and resources, financial resources available. And it still took almost two years to stop it. The second biggest lesson is political will matters the most in leadership. Well, it's one of the biggest, biggest factors in leadership. And then the third lesson that I learned is equally important to political will is community engagement and community mobilization. In my opinion, um, one of the reasons, if not the greatest reason, it took us so long to control the Ebola outbreak in West Africa was because of the lack of community engagement and community mobilization from the beginning. And when you don't have people's trust in the beginning, or maybe you have trust and you break it, trying to rebuild that trust or grow that trust takes that much longer. So... We all know that for Ebola and for COVID-19, besides the health, the vaccines, cure, all of that great stuff, the main thing is behavior change. And that is an individual thing. That's something that we humans have to do. And changing behavior is one of the hardest things to do. And engaging the community, mobilizing the community to change behavior needs to be just as important and just as focused on as every single other effort you're doing to contain a to contain an outbreak. So those are my top three um, kind of like lessons learned. So um, talk a little bit about, you know, if you're shifting to what's, what's happening now, um, 
and the lockdowns and the orders to stay indoors. Um, talk a little bit about community engagement in, in, in your view and how that's and how we're actually doing it now and whether it's whether we're doing it right. From a citizen perspective, you know, it feels very much that my government is talking to me and talking at me and not engaging me. And there is a lack of two-way communication. People are scared. They're losing their jobs. They feel like they're going to lose everything. We've have none of us are alive as a whole have felt this way before <laughs> as a whole of the country. And it's so much fear out there. And we all know that when you're scared, you generally make bad decisions. Um, so by kind of just forcing stuff on people, not even talking to them, not even saying, hey, this is coming. We are moving in this direction, but this is going to happen first. How is this affecting you? All these different things. I think that's really what's, what's, what's stopping behavior change from happening in the U.S. And what makes, you know, for instance, you walk outside and it could look like any given day in Washington, D.C. with the amount of people on the streets and activities that they're kind of engaging in. And so for, for, for me, I think that that level of mistrust, that level of fear, everything that's running through people's head right now is because of the way information is being given to us, is the way communication is happening, or the lack of communication that's happening. There's little transparency. People don't know how decisions are being uh, making and how it's going to affect their daily lives. And announcements like schools closing for the rest of the year, this happening, this happening, this happening, all at, all at once is so overwhelming. And the changes that are happening literally hour by hour is so confusing and so overwhelming. And there's no central repository where people can go. It's like, well, look at this link or look at this link. Well, call this number, call this number. It's just so much information. It's too much information. It's a lot of false information and it's affecting behavior change as well. Did that answer? <laughs> yeah, it does. And, um, you know, how does, I mean, how does, I mean, you make a good point about too much information and, you know, what about the role of like social media um, and how that affects I mean, in some respects, it's good. In some respects, it's bad. I mean, it's good on the one hand, because you could get to see what else. I mean, there's other options to see what else is happening. Um, and so you don't feel like you're, it does make you feel a little less isolated. And you can get more information through it. And you can see, for example, you know, get better sense of just from videos that somebody may have taken of what's going on, let's say in another country. Um, mm -hmm. But at the same time, it can be adding to the amount of information that's out there. Um, so what do, you, what do you think about the role of social media and what the role of social media should be in this kind of situation? I think social media could be a powerful tool. And that's the one thing we need to remember about any type of technology is that it is a tool. To a tool that we use um, from our toolbox to construct whatever we're trying to construct. Um, social media is great in reaching a certain population, especially the millennial population that we need to target and reach right now. And I think that um, Facebook, actually, it's going to be doing something very soon. I got an email from, from UNICEF and Facebook that they're launching something. But I think social media platform could, could be very successful in sharing stories of, of, of how to survive uh, this this virus, sharing survivor stories, letting people 
actually have a chance to see small videos and conversations and podcasts with people who survived corona so they can get that firsthand experience i think is a great way to share resources about the virus how things are changing but that means that facebook needs to really come in there and organize it just allowing kind of business as usual to go um bad information blocking information letting hackers kind of use the information and do bad. I have already started receiving spam things from people. Click this link if you want to know how to protect yourself against coronavirus, which I know is a scam, but other people may not know that. So I think Facebook and other social media is a great tool and something that we need right now to have that communication. It's something that governments can use to have two-way communication. If they can't set up a call line like 117, you could say, hey, Every day at three o'clock, we're gonna have 30 minutes with the mayor, you know, put questions in the comment boxes or something like that, just as an example. So I think it's a great tool to use and it should be used, but it should be used very smartly, meaning that the organizations, Facebook, Twitter, WhatsApp, who have, who have you, are, are, I don't, I hate to use the word regulating, but are managing their platform very well and making sure that fake information, false information, misinformation does not spread. And then also creating the a platform for COVID-19 where people who, if all you want to do is tune in to COVID-19 all the time, you can go on Facebook and right where you see, you know, the little picture for your, your, your own page, you can click on COVID-19 and there's an entire community around the world. So I think if we can move in that direction, it could be super, super powerful medium and platform to really help curb um, this outbreak, but also to help um, connect communities around the world and let them know that we're in this together, uh, that we're here together, that you're not alone, that you're not lonely. If you need mental health services, you can be using social media to connect with different psychiatrists and counselors who are at home as a way to connect. So I think it can, it's definitely a tool that should be used, but, but used in the right way, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. And, um, and, you know, one thing I, I think a lot about, um, and this is connected more to the mission of WCAPS as we talk about coronavirus now, um, but also thinking about, you know, what happens, you know, in the future. Um, and, you know, regardless of what kind of disaster you're talking about, whether it's infectious disease or climate change, effects of climate change, migration, um, you know, women of color bear the brunt of the, the major ramifications of it, not just immediately during it, but certainly in the aftermath and how things are resolved and things are handled. And, um, and so I think about that issue regarding coronavirus and, you know, we're very much caught up right now, at least a lot of people, um, you know, in the moment because you have to be, and it's such a, it's such a dire situation that you have to think day to day about how we're going to manage this. Um, but I also think about, you know, later on when this thing is actually, at least we get, get past, um, you know, this, this hurdle. Um, you know, I, I wonder about how we make sure things are equitable and how we resolve this and how we deal with this. And, and, you know, even now people, people are thinking about issues of equity in, in terms of, you know, basic things like, you know, who had, does everyone have a, a laptop that they can use to connect with people? Um, and I just wonder if you think about, you know, what, what are the things to think about in terms of, 
longer term equity issues, um, particularly for women of color um, in dealing with the, re the results of the, the, the ramifications of an infectious disease. Um, and I'm trying to start getting my head around what are the issues to think about now, you know? That's a great question. <laughs> and that's a great question and something I've been asking myself this week. Um, and this is not going to be kind of a straightforward answer. This is things that are just floating in the top of my head. But I kind of look at it as four big issues that we're going to have to address. One, COVID is going to bring out the health disparities between communities of color and non-communities of color. Which communities have the greatest health disparities? Which communities have the most underlying conditions have the highest rates of non-infectious non disease, non-communicable diseases, the highest rates of obesity, the highest rates of diabetes. So looking at the health disparity that's going to happen during COVID treatment, especially if doctors and hospitals have to get to that point where they're making decisions on who to treat and who not to treat. Um, and then going forward, how are the health disparities, how are the health disparities that we already have gonna be so much more worse, worsened as we move forward in terms of where priority is going for funding and healthcare? Because we know that after this, we do expect to see an increase in infectious disease funding, but is that gonna cut away from investments in other diseases that are affecting communities of color right now that are not even being addressed? So I look at it from that angle, the health side. And then when we look at it from the economic side, Communities of color are the ones who make up the labor, who vastly make up the labor pool for low-skilled um, service workers. And we're already seeing their jobs being cut and lost right now. We can see right now uh, what the thinking is in Capitol Hill about where the money should go and who the money should go to. So if we think about that and how that's going to affect us right now in the future, that's huge. Um, FEMA estimates that 40% of small businesses do not reopen after a storm. Haven't seen the stats on how uh, businesses of color fare off, but from everything we've seen, we, we know that uh, of that 40%, the large majority that probably doesn't reopen are, community, are, are businesses from people of color or businesses that serve people of color. So even the economic ramifications on what's going to happen is going to be detrimental. We have so many small business owners who are, who, who are not going to be able to bounce back from this. They don't have the reserves. They don't have the savings um, to be able to back, bounce for this. And then kind of when you look at the social issues and out after health and um, economics, well, no, I'll say education. And that goes right back to what you're, what you're talking about. And I think of my local neighborhood. My ward is the least connected out of all of Washington, D.C. We have the least internet, internet connectivity. We have the least amount of households with access to a laptop. So all of the students in my community who live in houses that don't have that, how are they going to continue with their learning now that we know that schools are going to be closed for the rest of the semester? What's going to happen to them when they go back, whenever that is? what kind of remedial training? Are they going to be held back and other students um, whose families have more income and was able to do the online learning and they're and not able to, just able to do the online learning, but their parents could supplement information because their parents had that education or those accesses. What's going to happen with that? You know what I mean? And then kind of the last bucket, social. I'll throw everything else in there socially. 
we know that communities of color are, are going to be impacted the most because of their current kind of economic health education status in the U.S. We're going to feel it the hardest during this response and then for several years after. We can look at West Africa, we can look at Sierra Leone, Liberia, and Guinea right now. The West Africa epidemic officially ended um, in uh, the end of 2015, very beginning of 2016. It's been four years and those countries are struggling. Some of them are in worse shape now than they were before Ebola, are still in worse shape than they were before Ebola. So this isn't a 15 day you know, turnaround. This isn't a 30 day turnaround. For those of us, for many communities of color in the U.S., we're going to feel the ramifications for this for several years to come. And if we don't act as a country to finally take this opportunity and to rewrite the fabric of this country to say, what do we value? Is it human lives or is it money or, you know, free market access or whatever you want to call it? This is, our, this is a defining moment of America. And it gives us the opportunity to set a lot of wrongs right. And to really say, do we want to be an inclusive country who values equity, who values racial diversity, and who, divide, who values access to opportunities for everyone? Or do we want to just get through this outbreak and go back to the status quo? And I think that's the question for all of us we have to answer and say, who are we? What is this nation about? Yeah, I totally agree. I think there's a lot of thinking that we need to be doing. And you know, and next steps, and hopefully we won't we won't wait till it's too late to start doing that. Um, so that's some of the things that you know I think that we could be doing in WCAPS as well, um, and we'll definitely be soliciting your advice and other WCAPS members as well um, as we go forward. Um, I guess you know I guess you know there's more to discuss on this, and so this is kind of like one part of many discussions that you know, the organization is going to have on, on, on COVID-19. But I think what I'd like to do as we, as we close out is, you know, one thing I'd like to do is have uh, my, my, uh, my folks on, on podcasts uh, say a little bit to some of the younger, younger folks who are listening. Um, and, you know, if you have some words of wisdom for them, either, either if they want to do some of the work that you do in development or, or find themselves doing great work during an emergency response issue or infectious disease. I mean, what do you say to them uh, in terms of if they wanted to be like you or do what you're doing or, you know, what, do you, what are your words of wisdom for them? You know, Bonnie, I absolutely love young people. I love millennials, Generation Zers, Wires. They are so creative. They are so innovative and they are our future. And I, my words of wisdom to them is get involved get innovative thinking think about solutions that you can do to help this response what can you do um to personally help slow the spread of this outbreak and also what can you do to help your neighbors that are in need to help the vulnerable population in, in need and really seek out those opportunities one thing from ebola that was very interesting and i tell people this when i talk about ebola is that there was a global call um it was like one of those global cups innovation challenge for individuals or companies or whoever 
to submit ideas on how to help the Ebola outbreak. And you could look at economic ideas, you could look at actual treatment, um, you could look at contact tracing, quarantine, whatever. And the, one of the ideas that won was from a group of stu college students. And I, I always bring this back because they won, they beat out all these companies and they won. And their innovation was to put food coloring dye into the solution that um, we use to disinfect healthcare workers and other first responders. So, you know, you see people in those PPEs and the PPEs are white. And most healthcare workers and first responders caught Ebola when they were actually taking off their protective equipment. And they used to be sprayed down with um, chlorine and other uh, disinfectants, but it was always some spots that was missed and all of a sudden they get infected. So what the college students' uh, idea was, was to add food coloring to the solution so that you could actually see where the spray went. Because, you know, they were wearing white PPEs and the chlorine solution was clear. So you couldn't see if you missed anything. But when you added the food coloring, you could see if you missed any spots um, during the disinfectant process. And that was genius. It didn't require a lot of computers. It didn't require apps. It require a little bit of innovation and how do we look at things differently. So I always bring that as a source of inspiration on what you can do um, as young people to, to help. You can bring your innovation, you can bring your smarts, your talents, and it doesn't always have to be technology. In terms of getting into international development, especially women of color, we need you. We need your voices. This field is not very diverse. It is overwhelmingly white and leadership is overwhelmingly male. We need people from different backgrounds who didn't study divert, excuse me, who didn't study political science or history or international affairs, who studied technology, anthropology, biology to get in the citizen industry. We need your brains. We need you in here. We need you in leadership positions. So I highly encourage you to try to get into this industry and make some real changes and solutions. And for this COVID-19 response to to one, self-quarantine, <laughs> social distancing, and then think about ways you can help your neighbors in your community. That's a great response, thanks. And a perfect ending. Thank you for that, Jamila. Um, so I just wanna thank uh, Jamila White for uh, not only taking the time to do this podcast, but for the work that she has done uh, on, on many things regarding either Ebola or the hurricane and anything that you're doing now. Uh, appreciate that um, very much. And these, these discussions on COVID-19 and perspectives of equity will continue. We'll have some more of these discussions because I think they're very important. Um, so if anyone um, is interested in being part of these discussions, just connect with us on WCAPS at WCAPSnet.org. Send us an email um, if you want to be a part of these discussions. Um, because I think this is an important issue right now. So thanks again, Jamila. I appreciate it. So much. And uh, thank you all for listening. Thanks, everyone. Have a good afternoon and stay safe. Thank you for tuning in. To keep up to date with all things WCAPS, visit us at WCAPS.org or join us at an event in a city near you. Be sure to follow us on Instagram and Twitter at WCAPS Net. Until next time, speak up, speak out, get engaged.